Turning your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is 13 verses, but it's such, it's got so much in it, I'm only going to do half of it today. I'm going to do half today and half next week, because it's, it's a very uh, thought-provoking uh, chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when you're there, say, I am there. All right, I think I, I didn't hear anybody say I'm not there, so... Let's, let's, let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is shocking. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth on his third missionary journey at Ephesus, writing back to Corinth that he established on his second missionary journey, says this. It is actually reported as immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst for I on my part though absent in body but present in spirit have already judged him who has so committed this has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, how many times have we heard Christians say, especially new Christians, man, I wish it was just like the early church. I want to be just like the early church. They're talking about the power, the glory, the answer prayers, the evangelism, the miracles. And they see all this glorious stuff happening in the book of Acts. They say, man, I wish we could have it just like them. I wish we could have it just like them. That is true. I agree with that. We hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. We hunger and thirst for his move. But not everything the early church did and did back then, we want to repeat as we see right here. This morning, we're going to see a jaw-dropping, gross immorality in the accountability and the discipline that follows accountability and discipline people don't like those words they kind of little thorn in the side like I don't, I don't like those words accountability and discipline but let me tell you this and i'm going to try to show it to you this morning accountability and discipline means love it means love go ahead and throw it to you up front it means that people care about you not trying to throw a wet blanket on your party not trying to be the boss and tell you how to live your life what we're really saying is, we love you. We love you, we care for you, and we don't want you to wreck, to wreck your life. Real love, real, true, godly, agape love challenges people. It challenges people, it holds people accountable. God's love is not some pampering um, Hollywood love. It's a perfecting, compassionate love it says this, I want the very best for you. Because that's what God said to us. I, I gave you my very best, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want the very best for your life. We serve a good, good father. And he does not want you to wreck your life. And as your brothers and sisters in Christ in love, neither do we. We don't want you to wreck your life. What would you say of a parent? What would you say of a parent who never disciplines their child? There's no love. 
There's no love and there's no care. Discipline, my friends, please let this sink in. Please let this sink in. Discipline is a good thing. Discipline is a good thing. If you if you've had any job for any amount of time, been married for any amount of time, been in the military, you know discipline is a good thing. We got to have it. Hebrews 12:6 says this: For those whom the Lord Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Discipline is a good thing because discipline basically keeps us from wrecking our lives. Does anybody can anybody agree we don't want our lives wrecked? You know what I'm saying? We all got examples, no people in our head that have wrecked their life because of the poor decisions they make. Some of us in here, including Pastor David, including me, I bear the scars of the past. I bear the scars of the past before I became a Christian of the consequences of my actions and my sins. They're still there, and I still bear them. Discipline, when done right, is compassionate, and it is the greatest act of love. Again, discipline and accountability, because we're going to talk about accountability too. When done right, and compassionate, is the greatest act of love. It's one of the most difficult things, but it's the greatest act of love. All right, the outline, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 tells us what the sin is. Verse 2 tells us the real issue, tells us the real problem. It tells us the reason why Paul wrote this letter, not necessarily because of the man's sin, but because of the way the church responded to it. And churches, I mean, church, verses 3 through 5 give us the solution. It gives us the solution. So verse 1, the sin. Verse 2, the real deal, the real problem. And verses 3 through 5 is the solution. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, as we dive into it now, verse by verse, and look at what you're seeing in here, I pray that you speak to our hearts, encourage us and strengthen us, Lord. And let us understand this morning, let us leave church this morning knowing, help us to understand that we understand we need accountability. We need accountability with other Christians. We need accountability in our church. Um, It's part of your program. It's part of the grand plan. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, verse 1, let's look at The sin. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist, does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. First thing we see in this verse, he says, It is actually reported. In other words, what he's saying is, Church at Corinth that I established you three years ago, this is the word that's getting out for you. This is what you're being known for. How would you like to be known for that? Not a good thing. You know, they were there in Corinth. In Corinth, we know there was a lot of immorality. It was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And instead of the church uh, infiltrating the world, the world was infiltrating the church. But it says that's what they were known for. This says that there is immorality. The Greek word is porneia from whence we get the word pornography. This word porneia is an umbrella word. This word porneia that is introduced in our English versions of immorality is an umbrella word. It covers all sexual immorality. Everything outside a husband and wife. Sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, incest, 
all forms of sexual immorality except for between a husband and a wife. All immorality. It's an umbrella word from the word, the word porneia. And that's what's going on. There's, there's sexual immorality going on in the church. That can't be, guys. It can't be. He's called us. Jesus has called us out of darkness into his glorious light. We're called to leave the old life behind. We're called to repent and leave it behind. And notice what he says here in verse 1. He says, it does not even exist among the Gentiles. Back then in the first century, according to Caesario, it was against Roman law. It was against incest here. It was against Roman law. And it was, it was punishable by being imprisoned or being banished. It was against the law. It, could, it, could, it wasn't even allowed in the culture, but yet it's happening in the church. And the sin that's going on, that's, t- that's taking place with this gentleman in the church, at the end of the verse it says, he has his father's wife. Incest. He's, he's sleeping with his stepmother. We, we believe that the, the woman, because she's not called into accountability in, in the scripture, we believe she's possibly not a believer. But the gentleman has his stepmother. Sexual sin is more corrupting than any other sin. I'm going to repeat that. Sexual sin is more corrupting than any other sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this. Talking about sexual immorality, it's kind of like, it's, all sin is sin, okay? All sin is sin. We know that. But there's something about sexual immorality. It's a deeper, more grievous sin. Talking about these sins of immorality, porneia, outside of the bounds of marriage. Flee immorality, Paul says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. The Apostle Paul in this verse, he separates it out to show how damaging sexual immorality can be. It scars us. It scars us. All sexual activity outside of marriage, it, it, it scars us. It scars, he says, um, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. First off, it scars our spirit. It scars our spirit. Why? Because sexual immorality primarily is a sin against God. It's a sin against the seventh commandment. Seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. And when we violate that commandment, we're sinning against God. So it damages our spirit because it's a sin against God. Then it damages our mind. It it scars your mind. Sexual immorality will scar your mind. Because guess what? It's there forever. And you will remember it forever. The mistakes that we made, the sexual immorality that we partook of, it's, 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 it's there and it damages, it scars our mind forever through our memory. Through our memory. It causes guilt later on down the road. It affects us. It has a major impact on our minds and our spirit. And finally, 
It scars the body. It scars the body through sexually transmitted diseases. It can scar the body through sexually transmitted diseases. We're meant to keep ourselves till we become husband and wife, one man, one woman together. And then we move forward. Outside of that, you open your, people open themselves up. They open their spirits up to scar. They open their mind. They open their body up to scars. All sexual sin. All sexual sin outside of a husband and a wife. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that we just had have on the screen, he says, flee immorality. The Apostle Paul would later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, and he says this. He, say, he repeats this same verse in chapter 2, verse 22. He says, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, and love with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says, flee from it. Guys, we got to run from it. If you're a red-blooded male, if you're a red-blooded female, you face this temptation, okay? Nobody in this room is outside the realm of being tempted. That's why we have to take action, and we have to flee, and we have to run from it. Why? Because of those scars. Because of the scars and because of the damage that sexual sin does. That's verse 1. That's verse 1. And if that's not bad enough, let's look at the real problem, the reason he wrote this letter. Look at verse 2. Speaking to the church, not to the man, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, so that one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. What was the church's problem here? They were arrogant. They were self-satisfied. They were self-confident. They had pride. There was no godly sorrow of what was taking place. And the way the, the, the language is written is as, as, as if they knew it was going on, but they were, they were ignoring it. They were ignoring it. There was, they didn't mourn. There was no godly sorrow. You know, sin should break our hearts. Sin should break our hearts. When you see a brother or a sister in Christ, I'm not talking about slipping and falling, but I'm talking about a, a brother or sister who says, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to go this path. It should break our hearts. It should break our hearts to the point of crying and praying and interceding for that believer and, 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 and prayerfully considering how we can reach out in a spirit of compassion, in a spirit of love. And let them know, hey, we don't want you to wreck your life. Why? Because, because sin deceives. Sin deceives us. You know, a, a person, uh, especially a believer, that thinks it's okay to live in this lifestyle, it's deceiving. It's deceiving. It's, de it's deception. It destroys life. And ultimately, it kills. It deceives it destroys, it kills. And because, of, and, and, and the, the, the bad thing is, it should have broken their hearts. And he says, he tells them, he said, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. There, there was no heartbreak over it. Sin should break our hearts. You know, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. In the body of Christ and believers in the church, 
We're here to minister to people. We're here to, to help people break free from the old life and go into the new life. And when we see the damaging effects of sin in the old life, it should break our heart. Not being judgmental. Look at what Troy's doing over there. I can't believe him. No, it's not, no, it's got nothing to, it's, it's not like that at all. It's our hearts hurt. Our hearts should hurt. You know what it's like when you see your child doing something they shouldn't be doing. What does it do? It breaks your heart. It breaks your heart when you see your child making a bad decision. It breaks God's heart, and it should break our heart also. It shouldn't be arrogant. We need to mourn. It's verse 1 and verse 2. The solution. Let's look at the solution. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul's answer to this man. Now, this is, um, first thing we, you need to understand, we understand that this is incest. And, and the first thing Paul is going to establish is how serious, how serious this is. Knowing not only is it a sin against God, but also the damage is going to wreak havoc on him that his father's wife and everybody involved. Look at verse 3. He says, uh, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Principle number one, you've got to understand the serious nature of sin. You've got to understand how bad it is. Continual, continual, after you become a born-again believer, continual, deliberate, lifestyle of sin is one rebellion against God it's it's rebellion against God it's disobedience number two continual sin it it will wreck your life it will wreck your life it'll it'll eat away at you like an acid And, and 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 ultimately it will infect the church it will infect those around you we all have testimonies if you've been in church any amount of time to see a brother or sister who, who, who falls or, or just turns their back in rebellion and they had connections in the church, they knew people, and when that person goes away, it affects those people around them. It doesn't just affect the person and their relationship with God in their heart, but it also affects the church and the people around them. What's the unbeliever's favorite Bible verse? There you go. Thank you, John. I, I didn't tell him that either. The, the world's favorite Bible verse, I want to address this, the world's favorite verse, they don't know where it's at. They don't know what book it's in. They don't know who said it. They don't know the context. But their, their favorite verse is Matthew 7, 1, which is, judge not, lest ye be judged. What is Paul doing in this verse? He's judging. We are called to judge sin. We are called to judge, we are called to judge sin. But we're, we're, because we love people, because God loves them, we love them. If you go back and study Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, judge not lest you be judged, if you read the whole passage, you'll see what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, don't be hypocritical. He's saying, actually saying two things. Don't be hypocritical. Check yourself first. And secondly, don't pass the final judgment of condemnation on them. That's, what, that's the second thing he's saying in that passage. We can judge the sin. Rick can come to me and say, David, that is sin. And you need to get that right. 
and, and I'm, I hope he would. If he loves me and he cares for me, he will. That's fine. We can do that. Now, we're going to talk about, we're going to close this teaching because I don't want everybody to go in on the sin control and start, start ripping everybody to pieces. We're going we're to talk about the procedures and how it's done. But the church does, we do judge sin. We do judge sin. It's the body of Christ. It's his body. He judges it. We judge it. Paul judges it in verse 3. Look at verse 4. Let's read verses 4 and 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, have decided. Oh, this is tough. This is tough. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you. That's tough, man. There's a lot there. That is a very challenging passage. So let's go back and look at it. Verse 4, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus. That phrase, and also verse 4, he says, in the power of our Lord Jesus. What he's saying here is, this is what Jesus would do. This is exactly what Jesus would do. And if you don't think Jesus would judge sin in the church or with religious people, just go to Matthew chapter 23. In his day, in that first century, when he confronted the religious people of the first century in Matthew chapter 23, man, he blasted them. He said, you whitewashed tombs. Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, specifically says he was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. But he calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them hypocrites. He, he lets them have it. He says, guys, you don't have it right. The people of God, as the people of God, we've got to have it right. We've got to have it right. We've got to have it right. You know, people get this wrong picture in, this, in their mind of this meek and mild Jesus who's knocking on the door and saying, please, please stop. Please stop doing that. Will you please just open your heart and let me come in and let's stop doing that. Like, he's, like, he's, like Jesus is a little beggar knocking on your door saying, please come in. That's the wrong picture, folks. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and he commands us to turn away from sin and to leave the old life. He is the Lord God Almighty, and he commands all men everywhere to repent because God is appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. But God is so gracious. God is so gracious. Not only has he, has he um, commanded us in his word concerning accountability and discipline, but he's given us a family. He's given us a family to hold us accountable. Some people would say, man, just love on them. Don't confront them. To say that, to just love them, don't confront them, is the most unloving thing you could do. It's the most unloving thing that you could do. To say that you're not going to confront it, what you're really saying is, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't love them. And that can't be said of us because we love one another. We're family. We're family. Continuing in verse 5, he says, uh, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, i got to point this out here real quick. 
This is not a believer wrestling with sin. This, this is not a believer who's in the fight, who's in the struggle, who's going through discipleship, who's making his way to break free. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. What does it say? He says, he has his father's wife. That's present tense, ongoing, acceptable. He's embracing it. This is who I am. This is who she is. This is who we are. This is, this is in their mind, this is my way up. This is the way I'm going. This, this is, I have. He has his father's wife. Not, he, no, there's no struggle. He's, he's continuing, and it's ongoing. In verse 5 there, look at it, it says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. God, we, he's, first thing, when it says deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, you got to understand how bad sin is. Primarily it's against God, but it also it wrecks your life and it affects the church. And what's he saying here? To, to remove him from the church. He says to, to, makes it very clear to, to remove him from the church. So that, look at the second half of the verse, so that his spirit may be saved. The hope and the church in Corinth in removing this brother from the church, the hope is that he will go out there into the world and he will see the destructive nature of sin. That's the hope. That's the hope. We don't want them living with a false sense of hope within the church thinking that that lifestyle is okay. But, but we're hoping that he'll understand the, the destructive nature of the sin, and they'll repent. And they'll repent. That's tough love. That's hard. I've only seen it done once. I've only seen it done once, where a person was asked to leave because of what they were doing. The, um, the purpose, this is very important, the purpose of church discipline is always restoration. It's always restoration. It's never excommunication. The purpose is, brother, we love you, man. You got to get this thing right. You got to stop that before it takes your life, before it, it destroys your life. And ultimately, yes, you, you got you to do this. We exercise church discipline because we love you that much. We love you that much. Put it in the perspective of your relationship with your children, and it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Amen? Amen? Tough passage here. Now, we start talking about church discipline um, and, 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 and accountability. Question for you this morning that I want to close with as you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to close with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, and work our way through these three verses. Is Pastor David, what do you do? If you see another believer going down, this is very important. What do you do if you see another believer going down a dangerous path? They're going down a dangerous path. I'm not talking about a believer that's struggling. I'm not talking about a believer that's in a fight. I'm not talking about a believer that's going through discipleship. A new believer, they're trying to get it all together. I'm talking about one, they mean they are bent. It's like, I'm going this. What do you do with a believer that's going down a dangerous path? First, you pray for them. You pray for them and you love them. You love them like nobody's business. You, you show them an extra measure of love. You show them an extra measure of compassion. Um, just you got you to gotta lay your heart out there for them and show them how much you care, how much you care, how much 
how important they are to you and let them see your emotions and, and, and let them feel your compassion as you're reaching out to them to help them. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Let's look at these. He says, uh, this, is, this is how you approach another brother or sister, according to Jesus. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by mouth, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right, let's go back and look at this. Let's break these three verses down. Um, verse, let's go back at verse 15. First thing it says, if your brother sins. Now, that fourth word there, sins, is present tense. It means it's ongoing it's continual, and it's set in motion, and it's going, okay? It says, look at, look at verse 15. And if your brother sins, go and post it to Facebook and tell other people. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. It says, go and show him his fault in what? Private. 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 It's none of nobody else's business. It's a very sensitive issue. It says, go show him his fault in private. Why do we, we, why do we go in private? Because it minimizes misunderstanding. And it helps us talk to that person. It helps us to them see our emotions, to hear our words, and to hear our voice of compassion. And, and, and then... It also, when we go to them in private, it, it, it eliminates gossip. It eliminates gossip. Uh, and again, I, I can't reiterate it enough. It's none of nobody else's business. It's none, it's none of nobody else's business. I am so thankful for the men in my life who have held me accountable. I have been, I've had people, I've had people in my Christian life get up in my face. I remember, I remember two of them in particular get up in my face and said, you got no business doing what you're doing. And I snarled and I growled and I walked off. But guess what I knew? I knew he was right. I knew he was right. I remember Jim Sidebottom, Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'd only been a Christian a couple years. He had men's Bible study every Friday night. It was Jim. He was, he was an older gentleman in his mid-30s. We are all in our young 20s. Man, he had us in a circle, on the red carpet. He'd be looking at us, how you doing? How you doing with your purity? How you doing with your eyes? How you doing with your Bible reading? How you doing in your prayer? And he held us accountable. And it seemed tough at first. Man, who do you think you are talking to me like that? But I look back at it now, and I attribute my Christian growth, a lot of my Christian growth, to what Jim put into me through the Bible studies. And I'm so thankful that he held me accountable. He, but, he, but, he, but he did it to us. I'm sorry. Verse 15. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. It's like we're winning them back to Christ. We're bringing them back into the shepherd's fold. But verse 16. He says, but if he does not listen to you, take one 
or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Again, we go to that believer in a spirit of humility and love with witnesses and say, listen, man, this is going to wreck your life. You need discipleship. You need to get out of this life before it destroys you. We go with witnesses. All of this is done in a spirit of love, compassion, humility, to, to, to win that brother over. It's not a judgmental spirit. I can't believe you, Rodney. You just, it's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's done in a spirit of love and humility. But then we bring witnesses. And then verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Worship team can begin making their way back up. Finally, as we see here, he's got to understand the serious nature, the destructive nature of the sin and how it will destroy him. And the greatest act of love, the greatest act of compassion is to do whatever it takes to help that brother or sister break free from that thing that's going to destroy their lives. Amen? You know, I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. I can't emphasize enough how thankful I am for the men in my life who have held me accountable. And my wife, by the way, too. She won't hold back either. She'll, she'll call me on the carpet on a regular basis. <laughs> and I'm very thankful for that. But you know why she holds me accountable? Thank you. Because she loves me. She, she loves me. She cares for me. You know, a brother that comes to me and says, hey, i got to challenge you in this area of your life. I respect that. That shows me he cares and he loves. That shows me he cares and he loves. Whereas a brother that says, eh, whatever. Do your thing. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. One of those deals. That brother doesn't care for me. We, we got to do it. We got to do it. Question for you this morning in closing. How do you measure spiritual growth? How do you measure your spiritual growth in your life? I'll give you a couple of them. One is how much do you love Jesus? We all love Jesus. We all love him. Jesus, you are Lord. I love you with all my life. How much do you read your Bible? That's a good measure of our spiritual growth. How much are we reading the Bible? Man, I'm reading the Bible. I'm getting into the word every day and going to Bible studies and it's amazing. How do you, a third way you measure your spiritual growth, how often do you go to church? How often do you go to church for fellowship and getting in the word and, and getting in the worship? Oh man, I'm there. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. How about this one though? This is the challenging one. And this is where your, your pride is going to knock on the door when I say this. Your pride's going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. Stop right there, Pastor David. That ain't gonna, that, I don't know about that. But the fourth way you measure your spiritual growth is this. How do you respond to accountability? How do you respond to accountability? Um, I'm telling you right now, the greatest act of love 
from another Christian as a Christian that loves you enough to hold you accountable. And if you really love, if I, if I really love my brother, I'm going to hold him accountable. Amen? We're in this thing together. We don't do it judgmentally or hypocritically or, or, or trying to bring condemnation on people. No, it's none of that. It's we, want, we want to bring them back to life, put them on a good footing, and, and, and let them live a life of freedom and joy and peace and serving the Lord in their minds, in their hearts, in their physical body. And we know sin damages all three of those. It scars all three of those, our mind, our heart, and our body. We don't want, we don't want that. We don't want that. Next week, we will pick up at verse 6. And next week, we'll look at a recipe for disaster. Next week is a recipe for disaster. What happens when you don't have accountability? This could be in the church. This could be amongst Christian brothers, Christian sisters, when you don't have accountability. We're going to look at what happens when there's no church discipline. And guess what? I love this. Uh, studying this, this dude in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 2 and chapter 7, gives us some hints to what happened to this man. And it's a good thing. So we are going to look because this church stepped up to the plate with their knees knocking and their heads sweaty and, all, and their palms all sweaty. They took the courage to approach this man. We're going to see next week his response. And it's a good one. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, thank you for um, accountability. Father God, help us In this body here, I pray for every lady in this room that she'll find a friend that sticks closer than her brother, that she'll find a friend that she can open her heart with and talk to and open up about the things that are going on in her life and a friend that will hold her accountable. Lord, help us to understand this morning that accountability is love. Accountability is one of the highest loves because it's the love you have for us. And Father, I pray for every man in this room um, that you would lead us to that brother, to that Christian friend who won't sugarcoat it, who won't seeker sensitive it, but who will speak the truth in love and hold us accountable. Because Lord, it's in those times it's in those times of accountability that we grow the most. So, Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray.